0: Welcome to the CEC report. It's the 27th of October. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined again by CEC leader Craig Ishwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. In this week's CEC report, the fight is Glass Steagall versus bail-in. Get involved, and three weak points that could crash the global financial system. So first, the fight is Glass Steagall versus bail-in. Get involved. So, Craig, this is a call to arms. We've mm-hmm. got for the next month, everyone who's a viewer of the CEC report get involved in this fight because it can make a difference, right? Um, what we need to do is we're going to give information, but people need to be thinking about it as they're listening to it. I want to use this information to call members of parliament and senators. Me, an Australian citizen, I'm going to act on this because that can get their attention, right? The 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 APRA bill we're going to be talking about wants to bring in a form of bail in under the radar. They want to um, call it like a pass it off as just technical details of the banking system. It's not. Yeah, it's a is fundamental think, issue.
1: Yeah, for our, for our new viewers who have just tuned in, what we're talking about is a policy called bail in. Now, this is some some people might remember back in 2013 in Europe, in Cyprus, where the banks or the government basically came in and they took. Money, people's deposits over the value of hundred thousand euro they just took them and this is a policy that's coming in around the world and it's, it's been placed in Europe it's in place in New Zealand where when the banks get into trouble that the governments can come in and literally take people's deposits to solve yeah. the banks
0: problems and the reason Craig we've said in this that the fight is glass steagall versus bail-in because let's just give two broad definitions I wrote them down here glass steagall keeps banks safe and therefore Mm -hmm. our exposure to them safe, our deposits, because it doesn't allow them to do anything risky. That's why they're safe. The philosophy of bail-in is gamble as much as you like. Go nuts. And when you fail, because you will fail, because gambling always fails, you can be propped up by your innocent, unsuspecting customer's exposure to you in the form of investments in their bonds, and in cases, deposits. That's right. That's the two differences. It's a no-brainer. It's the ultimate definition of a no-brainer. One is a proper way to run a banking system, one is a scam, it's criminal. Yet, since the global financial crisis, the the authorities in Switzerland, London, like the Bank for International Settlements, Bank of England, Financial Stability Board in Switzerland, have said, this is the way we're gonna go. We're gonna let the banks keep gambling, but we're gonna have this safety net And the safety, oh, we once described it, remember, as um, uh, human airbags strapped outside of the car, right? So that when they they recklessly hurtle off the cliff, they hit their customers instead. So that's the difference here. This bill, now, the last few weeks, regular bills have now been talking about the APRA bill, right? Crisis Resolution Powers for APRA, the Australian Bank Regulator, Australian Prudential Regulation Authority. This bill is effectively a bail-in bill. Well, that's what they're going to be doing. So, um, I want to just—we've been tracking bail in for a long time. This is the bill we started warning about in 2013, Craig. This bill, and no one believed us at that point, Robbie, because
1: you know the mantra coming out of the global financial crisis is, "Oh no, look, the Australian banks are safe. Yeah, yeah. We've got more regulation than most other places. You know, and how could you know this wasn't possible?" And we were, people did, just did not believe that this was on the cards. But they, the international authorities. The Australian banking system itself was talking about this behind the, the, the closed doors.
0: Yeah, so there, so here's, the, here's the, um, the proof of that. This week, in front of a uh, Senate committee, the boss of APRA, Wayne Byers, urged the, recommended this bill to the Senate, and he, he said when he was talking to him, he said that this bill, quote, has been many years in the making, end quote. Because it is the bill we've been tracking, so we'll put on the fi- on the screen a graphic that we generated, which you, which you can get from our CEC magazine on this Glass Steagall now, Figure three on page fifty six, um, where it's we highlight that in 2012 September 2012 there was a Treasury consultation power, uh, paper, sorry issued called "Quote Strengthening APRA's Crisis Management Powers," and in that consultation paper. They talked about how they wanted Australia to be in line with the Financial Stability Boards, what's called their key attributes of effective resolution regimes. Sorry about the language, but these are the titles. The last of those key attributes, Craig, was bail-in. And so we highlight that in there. You can see that the um, facilit and then it says facilitate bail-in there. All right, so had a look at that. Let's put up another graphic now from the same publication, the next page. This is graphic number six where a few months later, 15th of April, 2013, the Financial Stability Board reported on the progress of countries complying with its key attributes. And Craig, I'll get, just get you to read that quote there, that that's section number one, just read it out. Completing the resolution toolbox for banks,
1: it is critical that authorities have a broad range of powers at their disposal when faced with a crisis. This is not the case in all FSB jurisdictions. In many jurisdictions, resolution authorities still lack the power set out in the key attributes to achieve rapid transfer of assets and liabilities and to write down debt of a failing institution or convert it into equity. Bail-in. Although legislation is in train in some jurisdictions, including Australia, Brazil, the EU, France, Germany, Indonesia, Singapore and South Africa to align national regimes fully with
0: the key attributes. Okay, so this here is that bill. The explanatory memorandum of this current APRA bill effectively admits that, right? So I'll just read that section. Um, Since 2012, the G20 and FSB has continued to progress this work, including updating the FSB's key attributes on effective resolution regimes, key attributes in 2014. The Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, which the current boss of APRI used to chair, Wayne Byers, and the International Association of Insurance Supervisors have also taken steps to further address crisis preparedness in their core principles for the supervision of banks and insurers. The proposal in the bill, sorry, the proposals in the bill help to provide a framework for resolution that is consistent with these international developments, in a manner that is appropriate for the Australian financial system. Now, it's, so that's, this is the bill. However, we've been doing this for a long time, so that in the in the meantime, this has evolved, and we've have we have because we've made it evolve um, in response to our mobilisation. What's what we noticed at a certain point is Australian authorities shied away, Craig, from any. Um, uh, discussion of what's called statutory bail-in, which is a bail, a specific bail-in law, like New Zealand's Open Bank Resolution, it's called over there, where it's a specific law that says this will happen, that will happen, um, a bank will be closed over the weekend, you'll have your, this percentage of your deposits taken, etc. Our Our, our authorities shied away from that. The Financial System Inquiry, actually, in 2014, that Joe Hockey set up, actually said, we're, we're gonna um, not go down the statutory bail-in path, well, that leaves the others, there's still another form of bail-in called contractual bail-in, mm-hmm. which is what has been really heavily promoted in Australia. And again, for regular viewers, you, you'll recognise this is what we call bail-in bonds, where banks are selling products where in the contracts it's written, and most unsuspecting investors wouldn't know. And when I say unsuspecting investors, I'm not just talking about self-funded retiree mums and dads. You're talking about super funds, especially. A lot of people could be exposed to this stuff in these contracts where it's written into the contracts if the bank gets in trouble, bang, these, these products they've bought will become worthless, mm. right? converting the worthless shares. We know that's what Australia has been going down the, the path of. Well, this, um, this bill gives APRA the power to call the shots on all that and say now's the time for that kind of contractual bail-in. Now's the, and, and frankly, the other thing is you can't rule out that in a real extreme emergency, they might you know, even have in their back pocket something to go back to say, well, we're going to grab deposits too. Right, you can't rule that out. The main thing to understand for the viewers is what we said at the beginning. It's bad enough in its own terms, Contrast it the Glass-Steagall. It is a no-brainer. Our government is taking us down a criminal path in line with these institutions that are there to protect the banking system, not the public. That's what we've got to stop. Well, you
1: can't this the whole thing is that this is to protect the financial stability of the system first and foremost. Mm-hmm. It's not to protect the depositors. Not the health of the the customers. Not not, not the depositors. It's the system they're trying to protect. Mm. Whereas Glass-Steagall, the focus has always been on protecting the depositors and the the deposit system for the economy as a whole. What they're trying to protect uh, is the banking system for the bankers as a whole. There's a very big difference. And the change came in you know, basically in the 80s and the 90s, as you got more and more speculation built into the system, the Reserve Bank Act and all sorts of other, uh, uh, you know, the Banking Acts and so forth were changed to bring this idea of financial stability into the lexicon of banking. Before that, there was no such thing. Because
0: banks weren't allowed to gamble. They weren't That's allowed why. to gamble.
1: It was some, <laughs> the deposits were protected. They were sacrosanct.
0: Yep. You couldn't touch them. All right, so with that in mind, what we need to do... Craig, Parliament, this bill was introduced last week. Parliament's now risen. The House of Representatives doesn't come back until the end of last week in November. That gives Mm. us a month where people can start calling their senators, and what we're asking people to do is especially call non-liberal party senators. Not that we're writing off all liberal party senators, except that they had their chance to stop this bill in the party room, and they didn't. And unfortunately, the way it works, most of them will just follow orders to vote for it, right? It's the non-liberal party senators. Labor, National Party and the crossbenchers, they are the ones, find them in your state, you go to aph.gov.au, you'll see the list of senators there, find the ones in your state, go see them or set an appointment to see them, phone them or email them, right, all of them, and start communicating your opposition to this bill and demand they block it and go with Glass-Steagall instead. And it may seem simple, but it's the numbers of this that's going to have an impact right? This, this, this actually does work. Most of these MPs, look, what are they thinking about in Parliament right now? They're thinking about Michaelia Cash, they're thinking about same-sex marriage, they're thinking it, there's so many, many distractions and this, that's, that's, it's in that circumstance if something that something sleeps under the radar, we can stop that and get, a, and get a process in the Senate where it grinds to a halt, maybe becomes a subject of a committee to examine it, whatever, but so they don't ram this through and this can become the catalyst to get a proper debate about Glass-Steagall in Australia especially in, the considera- in consideration, Craig, of what we're going to talk about next, that this financial system is right on the edge, little things are having a big impact because it's so vulnerable, and that it could come down any moment. And that makes this whole thing really, really urgent. So let's take a break, and we'll talk about that when we come back. Welcome back to the CEC Report. Three weak points that could crash the global financial system. Now, Craig, there's lots of indicators of a new financial crash coming. You and Elisa spoke about it on the show at length last week. The CEC aligns with the experts, frankly, who there's a certain way of thinking about it. The last crash, the last crisis didn't end, is the truth of this, right? It's not like 2008 happened, they fixed it, and off, but suddenly we're back because that's the nature of the world. No. 2008 happened. It was the meltdown of the system. It's only been propped up since then with this massive quantitative easing. That's central bank money printing up to $16 trillion, which we'll talk about um, in a minute, actually. It's going to be one of the predicates today. It propped it up for a while. But what it's created is these massive bubbles, Mm -hmm. right? Not just one. And so there's people who are calling it now. um, You had the housing bubble before that, the dot-com bubble, whatever. This is the everything bubble. They call this what we're having the everything bubble. So Australia's got a housing bubble, the US has a massive stock market bubble, et cetera. There's just bubbles in everything, and Bitcoin, dare I say it. And I'll look at the YouTube comments on that. <laughs> anyway, we'll deal with that in a future week, I can tell you. Uh, okay, so these are, these are serious uh, problems. Because the bubbles are so big, Craig, we're at a point where the slightest thing can bring them down. They're really, really vulnerable. The smallest pinprick can bring them down. And got to, I, so there's three things that have just happened, and I want to highlight them as examples that they could have brought down the system. All right, the first one is in the bill, when, when Morrison tabled his APRA bill last week that we've been talking about, he actually tabled three bills, uh, all to do with APRA. The other two had, were, were on slightly different uh, aspects of the, of the issue. But he made a statement that blew my mind. It just I thought, whoa, this is an admission. And... It was a quite obscure. you just got to have soaked yourself in this subject to get it, but I'll, I'll make people understand it. It was a reference to non-bank lenders. In Australia, that's all technical language. Banks are called ADIs, yeah. Authorised Deposit-Taking Institutions, and so he was talking about non-ADIs. Now, they are banks, they are, they are people, institutions that lend for mortgages, but they don't Take deposits, mm-hmm. right? And so what they're like Liberty Financial and that in Australia, what they do is they make loans for mortgages and they securitize. They go and on sell those loans to investors, get money in straight away from that, and then they make more loans. That's how these things work. Um, the share of the market in Australia, their share of the market is tiny. It's four percent. I'll put a graphic on the board here. It's this is up to 2014. I couldn't find a later one. But what it shows you that the inner circle is the share of mortgage lending in Australia in 2007. And what you can see is on the right side of the inner circle is the big four banks starting at the top ANZ, then CBA coming around the clock, NAB, Westpac. Together they accounted for 55%. All other bank, all other lenders counted for 45%, right? Well, today, seven years later in 2014, the big four banks had a much bigger share, 20, 75%. Others had... and most of those were smaller banks. Of that, of total mortgage lending in Australia, the non-bank lenders have 4%. It's a tiny share of the mortgage market. This is what um, Morrison said, quote, although their current share of lending is relatively small, these non-ADI lenders may expand rapidly and their lending activities could potentially pose material risks to financial stability. Risks that ultimately fall on the broader Australian community. End quote. Now Craig, there's only one circumstance in which the lending of a tiny share of the market like that could possibly affect financial stability in Australia, and that's what? A bubble. That's if we have a bubble. Yeah. And the thing with that is the government doesn't admit we have a bubble. Yeah. They say, no, we don't have a bubble. It's all good. Everything, all those prices are justified. But by their actions here with this, because they want to bring these non-bank lenders under APRA, in case something does go wrong, they're admitting that it's the sweat on their brow you're seeing, right? It's the white knuckles. Their knuckles are going white. They know something big is happening. And, you know, you played that quote last week where Morrison put the APRA bill in the context of emergency. Yeah, uh, yeah, a financial crisis will will affect Australia.
1: Well, you're talking trillions of dollars here, Robbie, in terms of mortgages. You're not just talking a few thousand or a few hundred thousand. You're talking trillions of dollars. So these are... And then you're talking about the securitisation, as you said before. Well, you're talking trillions
0: because it's a bubble. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't even be I know, but you're talking
1: about the securitisation of these, you know, portion of these trillions of dollars. So you don't know how far or where that goes. And this is where the problem comes in.
0: Ve- and, and it's very vulnerable because of that. It drives its size. Yeah. And that, that's what they worry about. The slightest thing could actually have a big impact. Um, let's see if we can get to another one before the break. Um, another example is this week, the Bank of England governor, Mark Carney, talked about, warned that Brexit uh, could affect £20 trillion in UK bank derivatives. And these are derivatives that the UK banks have made with other banks in Europe. And Brexit, if they don't, they don't get their act together, he's worried that Brexit could make those derivatives worthless. Now, the issue there is not so much the $20 trillion, though that's bad enough. If, those, if $20 trillion suddenly vaporises, that would be, have a huge impact, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But it's the fact that something like Brexit can come along and cause that problem is because that's the nature of the vulnerability of, of the derivatives trade anyway, which is officially $600 trillion worldwide, unofficially $1.1,20 half of which is in the city of London, right? And the reason it's vulnerable is because of this thing called counterparties. Now, let me try and explain this in a little bit of time we've got. Banks claim, the banks playing these derivatives with the trillions, they say, oh look, no, no, don't forget, ignore the trillions, that doesn't matter. We, um, we net them out and the real figure is much, much smaller. Now this is how netting works. Um, we have a cameraman here, his name's Glenn. If I owe Craig $20, Craig owes Glenn $20 and Glenn owes me $20, we can all say you're square, we're all square. We don't have to pay anyone anything because it nets out to zero. But if I owe Craig 20, Craig owes Glenn 30 and Glenn owes me 20, then we say it nets out to 10, the only thing really owing is Craig owes Glenn 10. Right? That's how netting works. And that makes sense if you're splitting a restaurant bill between three or four people. But these derivatives, these banks they have, this is in the trillions of dollars with the Bank of England says each of the big banks in the UK have between 2,000 and 4,000 counterparties. So what might work in a restaurant table does not work with trillions of dollars between two to three to 4,000 counterparties. And the 20 trillion dollars that might vaporise from Brexit could set off a chain reaction among all those counterparties where no one knows what's happening. That's what happened in 2008. That's what's on the cards again. So something that's, you know, Brexit's not little, but it's not big either. It shouldn't be that big a deal. It's just a judicial change. can bring down the whole system. Let's take a break and we'll deal with the other one when we get back. Welcome back to the CEC report, where we're talking about three weak points that could crash the global financial system. And finally, let me give the third one before Craig jumps in here. The US stock market, Craig, is soaring, right? And it's just going up and up and up. But this week on Wednesday, it actually crashed unexpectedly by more than 100 points. And it shocked a lot of people. Well, where did that come from? I'm going to put on the graph on the, on the screen why it crashed. This is a graph. And the reason it crashed is because that graph, as that graph, that's, for, that's the graph of the value of, or the yield, sorry, of... 10-year US Treasury bonds. And on in the morning, the, pri- the, the yield of those bonds suddenly went up. But it went up, I mean, a relatively small amount, from 2.415% to 2.46%, right? So it's not a huge amount. It's just it went up sharply. And the reason the stock market crashed on the back of that is because if the Treasury bonds are moving that that direction, that signals interest rates could be moving in that direction. If interest rates start going up, this stock market will collapse because it's all based on big US corporations borrowing money dirt cheap from central banks through this quantitative easing and using it to buy back shares that it's okay when it's 1% interest, but if they start going up, mm. the, the stock market will just melt in front of your eyes. right? And that's the, that's the third bubble. So a tiny thing like that shows you an example of how vulnerable the system is.
1: Well, see, Robbie, the difference is very clear. In the US, uh, the UK, the EU... Uh, even Japan, all these central banks, right? They've been involved in this money printing, quantitative easing. They've produced about 15 trillion dollars of money, which is literally being given to corporations to buy back their own shares, to and issue banks to debt,
0: speculate with, and whatever to
1: speculate with, and so forth, right? But these companies are simply using it to buy back their shares to issue these bonds at very low interest rates in order to try and, you know cover their positions from a purely monetary perspective. Now so, more and
0: more people are c- concerned about that Craig, but they're also concerned about China, which has a lot of debt as well, but there's a difference, right? Of
1: course, they, you know, China's issued about $16 trillion worth of debt, but it's been concentrated into about 22 countries companies. But these companies, Robbie, specifically have been inv- investing in infrastructure. So at the end of the day, whether it be 20 or 30 years or 10 years time, there's going to be a physical asset which is actually building the physical economy. And what you're finding is that the, because there is something coming back through the economy, because that physical economy, uh, the, the infrastructure is returning things to the economy, the actual debt ratios of that money that's actually, is dropping. Coming down. It's coming down the the because it's a real... You, know, you take, for example, if, our, if we were to build a railroad, a high-speed railroad in this country from Melbourne to Darwin, and we're going to open up the economics of the entire country to get more farmers putting goods onto that railroad system. Now, if we were to spend $20 billion doing that, Robbie, at the end of, say... At the end of... If we were to borrow that money, or even better, create that credit, as we've su- suggested through our national bank, you've got a 10 or, say, $20 billion asset. At the end of the day, you've got an asset that has the capability of physically transforming the, the physical economy of the nation. It's not a debt, it's an asset. So therefore you've increased the capacity of, the, of, of, the, of economy. the economy. You haven't given that $20 billion to AMP or to the National Bank or ANZ Bank to buy back their own shares and play around with funny money in order to try and boost their share prices. You physically can go out and you can have a look at the physical infrastructure. You can see the p- possibility of creating new factories to create rolling stock and all sorts of other physical activities that increase and boost the economy. And that's how you have an economy. That's what China's doing.
0: That's how you have an economy and a financial system that's truly stable as opposed to a casino, which is what they've got now, which is why it's unstable. So the debt at the
1: end of the day, when you put it into infrastructure, actually doesn't matter. It's the increase of of the economy and how that operates.
0: Thanks, Craig. Thanks for tuning into the CEC report.